Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge. And as always, joined by my way better looking co-host, Shelly Billinghurst. How's it going, Shelly? Oh, you're so charming, Serge. It's going great. We've got a wonderful guest today. I have the privilege of introducing today's guest. It is the lovely, talented Matt Charney, who's the head of TA practice at HR.com. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Have you ever been on a Canadian podcast? The OG, actually, was Michael Kellerman, who I believe is Canadian, the recruiting animal. So I would say that in all likelihood, my first podcast was Canadian-based, weirdly enough. That is right. The recruiting animal base in Toronto. And everything that I do in my current job is Canadian based because we are out of Port Jackson, Ontario. Another fun fact. I did not know Come that. On. Oh we my are a God. Canadian company. Very few US workers. You're oh. going to get your Canadian citizenship pretty soon. There's a couple of questions <laughs> we'll have to go through. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think you'll have. So what Canada does for allowing U.S. work visas is you have to have a skill set or ability that can't be found domestically. I write stuff on the internet and talk about recruiting, which are probably the two most common and commoditized skill set out there. So I don't think I'm going to be able to work in Canada anytime soon, sadly. You know, Matt, for our audience that doesn't know how famous you are, tell us a bit about how you got into this crazy industry. You're the first person who's ever called me famous. Checks in the mail. U.S. dollars too, Shelly. Yeah, my name is Matt Charney, and I currently serve as the head of talent acquisition community of practice for HR.com, which we'll get into, I'm sure, in a little bit. But essentially, I spent the last 15 years or so covering the talent acquisition space as an analyst and a journalist, but specifically with a focus on emerging technologies and workforce demographics and patterns both on more of the economic side as well as the technology side and how those are impacting the way the companies hire. I know that you wanted me to walk through my story, which is not a great one. I always want to start that off like the jerk and work my way forward. But (laughs) essentially, when I graduated college, uh, I graduated from the number one film program in the entire world, only 13 people a year. And I had already accepted my job in the William Morris mailroom, which tells you how old I am. And the thing was, it paid like $4 an hour and involved like 20-hour days. And I still wanted to be a screenwriter at the time. So I applied for a job I found on Craigslist, the Talent Scout. And it was in Torrance, which is like this industrial wasteland by the Port of Los Angeles. So I'm like, okay, that's weird that there'd be a production company in Torrance, but whatever. And so I go and I found out that Talent Scout was a fancy way of them saying recruiting. In my interview was the first time that I had heard that was a job. And I was like, wait a second, because when you graduate from college, you just want a gig. And I'm like, yeah. this job is selling jobs, something that every everyone I know wants and needs. That sounds pretty easy. So I got into that for a company that eventually got acquired by Manpower and became Manpower's RPO. I was one of the first employees of that company and helped develop their recruiter training. So I started relatively early. I was under 20, I think, when I got that gig. And from there, I moved to corporate side. And I have a sourcing background, but I really thought that sourcing was quite inefficient 
um, because at that point in time, Google was still pretty clunky. So what is now employer branding and uh, social recruiting were functions that I started respectively at both Warner Brothers and Disney as Department of One because they have good consumer brand names. I think yeah. people forget that they're places where professionals work. Let's try this. Fun fact, I think I sent, and this was summer 2004, the first ever Facebook message that was trying to recruit somebody for a job. From there, I was let go by Disney after they had to do a severe reduction force, thanks to $28 billion lost overnight with Lehman Brothers. Then I had to get a new jobs. I saw a job at Monster back in the day when nobody was hiring and we just applied for jobs wherever. And I was like, if nothing else, this will be funny. Applying for a marketing job at Monster, which did not have a great reputation then. They flew me up to Boston and weirdly enough, I got the job. And ever since then, I have really been tasked with a couple of things. One is building community content and conversation with recruitment professionals and trying to then triangulate that with larger trends that are going out in the world. So I take a very reductivist approach, which I think makes me a little bit unique. And as much as people love to add complexity to recruiting, I'm just like, how can you make a hire that people don't hate as quickly as possible? And the answer is that's actually really complicated, but nothing to do with process. I think that for me, this is, and I don't want to sound lame here, uh, almost a calling in that I could be writing literally copy about anything, but I think our work helps people find good jobs and good companies to find people. And I find something and always have intrinsically rewarding in that because so much we had self-identify and find our sense of self-worth, good or bad, more likely bad. And what we do when we do our jobs right, improving somebody's quality of life. And I can't think of many other jobs with no qualifications that allow you to do that. Boy, I believe that's why someone stays in the industry, because there's a lot of other ways to make money that are a hell of a lot easier than recruitment. Yeah, it's pretty easy to make money in recruiting. But yeah, there are a few that are easier. Downline, MLM, uh, HTM, these parking lots. But yeah, <laughs> no, recruiting is a good way to make money. Uh, probably not what we would call technically sound or ethical recruiting, but yeah. So look at both of you selling so altruistic in your pursuit here. I'll admit the reason I stayed in recruitment is the money. No doubt about it. I'm on the other side. Interesting story. I haven't met one person being in this industry for 20 years that has told me that they came out of college and wanted to go into recruitment. Everyone kind of falls into it. Yeah. Exactly to your point. I think we find our calling in it. I'm joking about that. It's the money that's keeping me here. Obviously, there's a lot of different ways you can make money, but... Good point. Well, I'm not as much money as you make, though. Exactly. He's exactly. rolling in the dough. It's got that oil print in the back there. I'm guessing that's an easy three to four mil. So yeah, <laughs> easily. Well, Shelly, I have three young kids. I have no money. But I'm curious, you recently joined HR.com, just the domain itself. It's a really good domain. I'm assuming it's been around <laughs> for a really long time. I have never really looked at it as a place that I would go get the information. And I do scour the internet for everything talent acquisition related. What's the story about HR.com and what's the plan there? Yeah, it is a very good domain name. I don't know that it, it is the most technologically advanced looking website that you'll find out there. They were innovative in the sense that you had somebody in Port Jackson, Ontario, who registered that domain name back, I think it was one of the first your URLs registered. It's pretty good foresight and built a business around it. And it's grown into the largest 
I wouldn't say it's a content destination, but portal for mostly general HR people in the world. And what they go there for are a couple of things, but primarily professional training and certification. We're a clearinghouse for both HRCI and then SHRM, as well as custom content that we develop based off of HR-related themes. We'll co-produce a lot of that. So the L&D stuff is very significant for us. Um, We also do a lot of thought leadership. And here's where it gets a little complex. We work with vendors, obviously, to help align their messaging with some of the trends and other packages that we put together. We have a giant research division. And even in talent acquisition, I'm doing one misery board-driven research project a month. So I just wrapped up our high-volume report on the state of high-volume hiring starting today on the future of talent acquisition. And so what I do is I'll take the top TA people at multinational companies and then the CEOs, their founders at some of the top HR tech companies, and we'll get together and and just talk for three hours uh, about a topic. And then that will help inform the research we do. And then the end result of that is twofold. We'll put on a virtual event where we'll share some of those findings and some of those anecdotal kind of best practices. And then we put out in our verticals 13 different magazines a month that are all related to various topics and talent. A lot of that going on. And then third, we do in-person events as well. Uh, So we'll both partner with like local SHRMs or professional organizations to produce those, or we will full on just do it ourselves. Like the HR West conference, which is California search and SHRM is one of our productions. And then we have a couple European shows and then one coming up in Nashville. So all over the place, actually. It's a lot of stuff. Uh, but we're an online marketing business that only meets HR professionals' needs. From a content perspective, we have about 2 million members. So that is a quite significant amount. Engage people who access our material that way. And if you've ever seen the site, you understand what I'm saying. Tends to skew a little uh, heavier on the demographic side. Uh, a little more experienced. It's a very HR-looking website, for lack of a better word. So all that is to say, the reason why you probably haven't heard of it, and I, I've been aware of HR.com, but not hugely involved with them my entire career, is that uh, Debbie is the CEO. It's a privately held, you know, I won't say it's a mom and pop business, Atacanda, and it's all been guided by Debbie's vision and she's really grown it. But she realized what you open the show with and everyone in recruiting knows, which is this is part of HR, but... The audience, the content, what marketers would call persona is pretty differentiated from a group of benefits providers sitting around talking shop, right? In fact, the latter conversation makes me want to shudder visibly. They can have those conversations. That's the primary stuff that was going on the website. About 40% of our members, though, are in talent acquisition, and we have a lot of offerings for them, kind of a one-off but not really a robust community, not dedicated kind of content or training around TA. And that's really a big passion of mine and always has been is to elevate the profession and not professionalize it necessarily, but elevate it and make recruiters not seen as those easy used car salesmen. So the opportunity to both touch an audience that I generally would have little to do with because I'll admit it, the Karens and Sherm don't love me very much, but that's a huge part of the audience I'm serving, as well as the fact that you have literally millions of new recruiters now starting to come in and try to find resources and learn. I thought it was a really awesome opportunity to take a well-known property and help scale up all of the good stuff that they're doing focused on TA 
and uh, sure beats product marketing. So I love the fact that you do the analytics, the research and reporting. It's like chocolate to me. I'd like, if you can share the state of hourly working in 2022. Yeah, we missed the webinar yesterday, but we still yeah. want the key points, like a sneak peek <laughs> to the audience here. Yeah, the report's finished, but anytime you want to look at our research, it's hr.com backslash featured research, high level, a couple different things that I thought were interesting. And that's actually my favorite part about the job is not only can I ask the questions that I want to, or, you know, or missing the research and we have a good survey response size, but I can also uncover some kind of interesting stories and learn some stuff. Looking at the data, there were some surprises, which is not something I thought I'd say about most VA things. The first of those was that not only is high volume recruiting starting to really be picked up in-house, that's becoming a dedicated part of in-house TA team, as opposed to something that's largely outsourced or done through an MSB. That's an all-time high in terms of the percentage of major employers who actually have that as an internal specialty. But more interestingly, they all plan to increase budget and training and headcount within that specialty function over the next two years. Literally zero said that they were going to cut or outsource more of those activities. I thought that was extremely interesting given how that has always worked. Two, as far as findings go, is we break down the companies between top in the industry, which we call leaders, and your top and kind of, you know, companies that aren't as effective, which we call laggards. And that's just done by the sophistication of where they're rating themselves on the answers. I found that despite the general chatter out there, the companies who were saying that their biggest talent challenge, especially for frontline workers, is the availability of talent, those were actually the laggards. The leaders generally have already built up process and database capabilities where their biggest concern is driving down cost of hire. So you see a big bifurcation between companies that have been planning and are process forward here and companies that are reacting to the conditions of the market. Okay, how do we optimize? The other's like, oh crap, we have so many heads to fill and nowhere to find them. I thought that was fascinating. And then the third, I would say, major finding is there's always been this weird theory, and I'm one who probably has had it until recently, that says that if I have to hire a cashier at McDonald's, that's like the easiest thing in the world. You can't do that. As a result of the assumed, I would say, candidate market there, it's almost become like a supply chain process in many different companies, which is to say they're butts and seats, to, to use the old term, and commoditize as human capital as widgets. What we're finding is the companies who are being really effective at high volume recruiting now, and the ones who are seeing the highest acceptance rate, the lowest number of ghosting, and the biggest savings in both time to fill and cost higher as outcomes are the ones who actually are intentionally throwing personalized interactions in the process and getting away from mass automation. The more human interactivity you have, which we normally would associate, I think, with executive or professional level type searches. That's a no-brainer, but it's an even bigger recruiting advantage for these types of roles. And it's free. Uh, that's a really interesting one. I know everyone right now is trying to figure out how do you maximize how efficient you are when it comes to high-volume recruiting because you can either buy it that you're you're just hiring a ton of recruiters or the technology they're leveraging, but how do you scale that? 
that seems extremely hard to scale that personalized interaction when you're looking at hiring, I don't know, 3,000 cashiers in a month at McDonald's. How should they approach that? First off, it actually becomes a little bit easier because your interactions can be placed in a process in the way that it makes sense. If you're doing it past a point of application, we have to talk about candid experience, like keeping them in the know about where they're at. But if you're intentional about it, like candidates who were inviting in for an interview, some of the case studies we looked at, they'll either then get a note from the recruiter with an information packet we found to be very effective or follow up from the hiring manager, just little stuff like that. It's being added intentionally in the process. So it's not a matter of scale because it's already built in. And then they're also doing a good job of dispositioning so that people are notified if they're not being under consideration. But that's pretty rare these days. The other way is to understand that in most of these situations, while the function is centralizing, the ultimate hiring stakeholders are at a field level and it's highly decentralized. McDonald's is a great example. They run, most of their stores aren't corporate, right? They're franchised owned. They're run by franchises and they're managed by individual line managers, even though they have to go through the same hiring standards as an organization. So tasking the hiring managers or franchisees or people who are on the line with recruiting, particularly for those positions that are so localized, where I know that my next hire probably lives within five minutes of my location, that's scalable because it's hyper-local. It's not a job you can do anywhere. It's a job you have to do in this physical location. And that actually makes scale relevant. Really good points there. Now that you're saying about localized work, and I do want to segue directly into that because there's been a lot of discussion in the industry. Started a long time ago, but Elon brought it back to the forefront a couple of weeks ago with his approach. And obviously there's the Airbnb approach, which is you can work anywhere. There's a lot of flexibility. So if we look at the Tesla versus Airbnb approach, and I'll focus on knowledge workers here, Matt, because I think this is really uh-huh. targeting. What's your take? With all due respect to Elon, uh, I've had a very strong opinion about this for quite some time. And I've been a virtual worker so to speak, for over a decade. It's only actually become hard when everyone else became one too. It used to be the best thing in the world. It's like no Zoom. You'd always be like the forgotten person, the conference call, and people didn't realize that you didn't have to wear pants. So those were great times before everyone got experience. But here's the thing, just objectively. One, the costs that go into the capital expenses of buying and maintaining an office are you're starting to see a business case for virtual employees. Two, obviously, there was a big trend of bring your own device that I think became commonplace, particularly small and medium-sized employers over the last few years. So everyone's already using their personal devices. You don't have to be on a network and the expectations you're not going to be in order to get it all done. And so from a technical perspective, there's a push largely to do it from home, if not cheaper for companies because they don't have to provide a lot of the infrastructure. And then when you look at the final and most important thing, if I'm sourcing, I want the biggest talent pool possible. And I don't think that talent is bound to a specific geographical instance, particularly if you're talking about skilled roles with very low qualified employee populations, they are clustered in places. But if I'm trying to get a Silicon Valley caliber engineer in Atlanta, it would behoove me to widen that search away from Silicon Valley. 
Now, I have discovered anecdotally in doing research, there are some unforeseen drawbacks to a full virtual working environment. People, not me, but people, tend to miss human interactions and the stuff we do that's not directly focused on work. And the other is that they don't feel it is tied into the culture or mission and therefore lose a little bit of that connection to a company. So those are the recurring themes. But I think that those are both silly and can be a counter-program through intentional design. I'm definitely on the Brian Chesky side of that argument over Elon. Also, that he publishes a glossy magazine. Don't like the fact that he's probably singularly responsible for exacerbating the availability of housing that's affordable in most industrialized countries. So that's the one thing I, I would say I disagree with Airbnb on. I've been on exactly the same side as you for a long time. I've worked remotely most of my career working for companies based in Toronto, but living in Western Canada. And I think the things you mentioned as far as how some employees that are new to this world, they're realizing it's a challenge as far as the human interaction, but also when you go back into the office and you have to commute 45 minutes each way, like we've gotten so used to this way of working and how productive we can be. And I'm completely on the side that I really am not missing the human interaction. Shelly would probably agree with that. Well, Matt, I just wanted to ask you something because you started out by saying there's an astronomical cost of commercial real estate. And I've said long from the beginning that the real reason behind you have to get your ass back into the office is because they've made these long-term financial investments into some really expensive property. And having those buildings sit empty, whether you're a Tesla or an Airbnb or any major employer, the only reason they're forcing you back is one, they're antiquated thinking you're not really working which we know is ridiculous, but I don't know. Do you agree that perhaps it's really the fact that they've got expensive real estate sitting empty? A lot of companies, I absolutely do think that it has to do with the capital investment they've made. And if you go down to like the Mountain View, Palo Alto area, you'll absolutely see that the way that the talent arms race manifested itself in a lot of geographies, New York City and London are also like just really stark examples of this. Dublin's actually, and I think that's the best one, where you just have a cluster of the same essential companies like your Fangs, and then you'll have your Cisco's or name a few hardware providers. But at the end of the day, they all sound the same. If I'm a developer, I'm writing the same code base. It was all about you work as a physical location. And that mm-hmm. was the differentiator. Google had slides in their cafeteria. I remember they showed me a yeah. speakeasy they had in their lunchroom in their downtown San Francisco office. So my first thought was like, it was speakeasy in a corporate office. That sounds like really dumb. Why not just let them out early to drink? But <laughs> that was how companies thought that their culture was manifested. And I can also tell you a lot of companies, even the ones who were doing virtual like work products, wanted all of their people on site so that they could manage and, and monitor their on-network activities. So mm-hmm. there's an info stack element to it as well in a lot of firms. So up until, what, three months ago, Facebook literally did not let any em- employees or contractors work outside of a Facebook network. You would leave your computer there. Obviously, that had to change, but there are reasons why even progressive companies have held on to that very old paradigm. So Serge seems to be convinced that we have this impending doom the end of the world, 
the rapture, that there is an impending recession. How do you see this affecting the labor market? It's going to drive wages up. What do you think? I think it'll actually neither deflate or increase wages so much as make them a little bit more stable, like all pricing. Because it's just been so, so much up and down on the compensation market recently. So I think it'll just go back much more to normal market conditions and you're going to have much less divide between people coming into the organization and people who've been there long-term in comp. That'll level out, which is actually a huge factor right now, is that you'll have people coming in making 25% more of the people who spent their careers there just because of market conditions. But besides that, I think a couple of things happen. Companies are going to go back to being too selective about candidates because every headcount in the downturn is a gift. And so we've enjoyed experimenting as much as we can with let's let algorithms do it and let's see how far we can push the process, knowing that there's definitely a surplus of jobs for available talent. But when that swings back, we're going to have to take all of these tools and things we bought and really be able to build business cases to our stakeholders about why those are helping us make better hires because companies are going to be a lot more selective. You're going to stop hearing conversations about, do you really need a college degree? Like you're going to start seeing a lot more screening requirements put in. And perhaps most exciting to me is I believe that it will be the final death knell of the overemphasis on diversity that has really held our profession back for the last several years. Can you say that again, Matt? Yeah, I think that, that <laughs> diversity has. Yeah. So since well before the pandemic, but certainly within the last three years or so, Everything in our profession has been filtered through diversity. Almost all growth and spend has happened in that category. I'm not convinced that it belongs in talent acquisition at the first place, at least not in the U.S. You were just saying. Okay. But I think that the emphasis on casting, which is essentially the way in which it's framed, has actually hurt broader talent acquisition initiatives, particularly when it comes to process enablement and when it actually comes to hiring diverse teams of the best talent. I think it's been counterproductive and we have over-focused on it. And when you have to focus in a recession as opposed to the boom years we've had in the past, you start to look at things in terms of real ROI and P&L as opposed to wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world without bias? Mm-hmm. which by the way, good luck with that. We can't figure out like which job board our hires put in through. So, yeah. <laughs> it's very true. I'm glad you very mentioned true. we're definitely in a recession. I, I swear to God, 80% of my feed is layoffs right now. And in the US for sure. I do want to dig in a little bit deeper on what you discuss in diversity. I was reading one of your articles that you wrote in, I think, November. And it really changed my perspective. I thought it made a lot of sense. What HR has done is really focused when we talk to diversity, equity, inclusion on bias training, job descriptions, and the list goes on and on. But where very few have touched is like, why are you not removing background checks and credit checks that are causing barriers before we hire them? Why do you think organizations have been so hesitant, even in this tight labor market, to take away those elements that are causing not only a bias, but removing a big pool of candidates away from the market. They're starting to, 
But again, because their perception is they're having trouble finding available talent, which is not the right reason for it. But one of the findings of the study I just did is companies are starting to raise the categorical prohibition against hiring people with criminal records or who have been incarcerated. But almost all of them say, we don't have a program. We don't have a strategy. It's like, oh, if it happens to come up and it's not too bad, like it won't necessarily knock you out. Whereas in the past, it used to be a minimum base of qualification. But I just think that from a perspective of looking at a really uncertain and changing skills market, the TA always wants to take on more because at the end of the day, job security is a huge motivating factor for all of us, as is perceived like business acumen and viability from our stakeholders and executives. So you need to get those two things. And so I think that the big emphasis on DNI is because what it does is it creates a candidate experience. I find no merit to that conversation whatsoever, but you can't really argue with the underlying premise. Nobody's going to go, yeah, you should treat your candidates like crap. At the same time, it doesn't actually move the needle on what it is purporting to do, but it is creating complexities around a specialty that is then perceived as St. Percent when it comes to looking at what departments can we cut? Oh, we can't cut that one. That's the one that helps us build the United Colors of Corporate Bennington, basically. And it's easy to do. People can cast. That's not difficult to do. Like, oh, I would have preferred to see this person play that part in that movie. And that's really what diversity has come down to. It's easy and it looks like it's moving the needle and nobody can knock the effort, even if there isn't an impact, just because of the way it's been positioned. So it's great for self-preservation, but bad for advancing our core business. Thank you for that. I want to jump to our last question, Matt. Last year, we saw record investment in HR tech companies. We saw so many unicorns. In the first quarter, we saw a very similar level of investment at $5 billion. There's a lot of money that's being thrown into HR tech. And then there's still a, an obvious imbalance when it comes to supply and demand. But with all this investment and everything that's going on, what do you think is going to be the major HR talent acquisition disruption in the coming years? Yeah. So I have one answer for that, actually, and that's interviewing intelligence. When I look at all of the different elements of our job, the one thing that really hasn't changed in either approach or efficacy ever is interviewing. We still largely will do it behavioral based. And our success rate's about as good as tossing a coin, even if we're trained. We're not very good at interviewing. So when you look at some of the trends, both in assessment design, contextual machine learning, and predictive analytics, interviews is actually something that can be dramatically improved by that because it's structured data, but you also have a way to actually transparently eliminate bias and upskill your workforce at a point that's not being controlled by the TA department. I just think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there because that's where the candidate experience kicks in. It's not unqualified applicants not hearing back. It's this person's in process. They're qualified. How do their answers compare to other people who've been successful from a predictive standpoint and how quickly can we move? I think that's the perfect intersection of use cases for these abstract concepts we've been talking about for a while. 
That's why companies keep hiring you, Matt, is for those insights. So I really appreciate that. That was great. Never heard anyone say that. Yeah, I know. It's definitely a good viewpoint. A lot of listeners have maybe never heard of you, even though we think you're famous, but if they wanted to reach out or find you, what's the easiest way to do that? The easiest way is at Matt Charney on Twitter. I'm really bad with LinkedIn and email, but my email address is mcharney at hr.com. Please drop me a line there. But yeah, I'll tweet right back at you because I can do that while smoking a cigarette. I'm like most emails. And please do reach out to me and tell me how wrong I am about anything you've heard on the show. I'd love to connect and be able to hear more about what's going on with the Canadian labor market because that's where my job's at right now, right? Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Matt. Yeah, great. Hey, thank you, you guys. Great meeting you. I appreciate the time. Hope Perfect. to meet you in real life someday. Thanks, Matt. I bet. Thank you for listening. Bye. Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.